Please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the very last few verses in this letter, Galatians 6, 11 through 18. So we're coming here to the end of this time. If you can remember how the letter began, perhaps you remember that Paul began this letter in a very personal way. He began by defending his apostolic status. He began by defending the the message that he preached. He wanted us to know that this message was not his own message. He didn't invent it. It came from God. It was revealed to him by Jesus Christ. Throughout the letter, he even expresses his personal anguish and love for these Galatians. He's compared his anguish and affection for them to the way a woman in labor feels. But Paul doesn't go into all of this personal detail because he's just using himself as an example or he's obsessed with kind of private religious experience. Rather, he uses his own example because he wants to point to the great work of God in Christ. You can catch a flavor of this just by looking at the first couple of verses that begin chapter 1. He, again, begins by identifying himself as an apostle, not from man, but through Jesus Christ. Then in verse 3, he says this typical greeting, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. So as Paul speaks of his own apostleship by the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, his mind is immediately taken to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and their great gospel work. How the Father sent the Son to save us, to give himself for our sins, and deliver us from this present evil age. So as Paul tells us about his own experience, it's it's not an experience that's, that's private and novel to him, it's an experience of God's saving, justifying work through Jesus Christ. As we close this letter in verse 11, we see that Paul again turns to his own experience and his own passion for the Galatians. So in verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I'm writing with my own hand. Up until this point in the letter, I think we can assume that Paul's been using a scribe to write the letter. So he's been dictating it to somebody else, a a guy whose job it was to do this, to write things down probably, or had been trained to be a scribe. But now Paul's taken the pen out of that guy's hand. He's got the parchment in front of him, and he's writing. He says he's writing in large letters, maybe because he's partly blind, But it seems he wants to draw attention to his own penmanship. As Pastor Tim said earlier this week when we talked about this text, this is Paul's all caps ending. He's trying to convey urgency even in the way he's writing. And in this final plea, Paul once again draws a comparison between the false teachers and himself. He wants his readers to see These false teachers have false motives. He calls them out as hypocrites. He says they're they're trying to foist the law upon you, but they're not willing to keep it themselves or not able to. He says that they've changed the message of Christ 
Because they want to avoid the persecution that comes from the cross of Christ. They want the Galatian Christians to be circumcised so that they can boast in the flesh. They can write up another maybe list, uh, report to their supporters. We have another church on our side. We want another one. Paul wants to warn the Galatians away from believing what these false teachers are teaching. But I also think we see him holding them up as a negative example. These false teachers are a living parable to life according to the flesh. They represent a worldly way of life. Despite the fact they present themselves as some kind of Christian teacher. In contrast to these teachers, Paul holds himself out as an example. These false teachers are boasting in what they've done, but Paul's only boast is the cross of Christ. It's Christ's cross that has saved Paul. He says he's been crucified with Christ to the world and the world to him. Paul doesn't preach one thing and live another way, not so far as he can help it. Rather, the life-saving message that he so passionately preached to the Galatians is the same message Paul has believed, that Jesus loved him and gave himself for him. Paul's final urgent plea is a two-part plea, I think. A plea that we should not fall into worldly boasting. We should renounce all confidence in ourselves. And we should boast only in the cross. This morning we're going to sit under that final two-part plea of Paul. First, renounce all worldly boasting. Second, boast only in the cross. Renounce all worldly boasting and boast only in the cross. Let's go ahead and read our passage. Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 11. This begins on page 975 of the Bibles provided. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So in verse 14, again, Paul says that he's boasting only in the cross, and again, contrasting this to the worldly boasts that these other brothers are making. And I, I think it's fair to call it a worldly boast because Paul says that because of his boast in the cross, the world has been crucified to him and he to the world. A world, as a kind of key word, hasn't occurred that many times. I think there's only one other place where we see world referred to, where Paul refers to the elemental principles of the world. So it's not a big key word in Galatians, 
But the idea expressed by the world has been running all throughout. Every time Paul has referenced the flesh, he's been in a way referencing this worldly order, this realm of freshly, fleshly pride, which says that there's some way of living, some act, some work that I can do by which I can please God. The world is characterized by the works of the flesh, self-indulgence, immorality, hating others. And this world is all about superficial glory, what can be easily seen and measured. Worldly boasting is to put your confidence in yourself, and Paul wants us to renounce it. It's a simple enough point, but it might help us just to look briefly at some of the ways this is expressed in the text, what he notes about these false teachers. This worldly boasting is marked by a changing of the gospel to avoid persecution. As we already rehearsed, it's marked by hypocrisy. It's marked by a focus on externalities. What can be seen? What can be counted? This is the way the world boasts. So he says in verse 12, It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. We don't know exactly how the Galatians' perversion of the gospel, or the the Galatian teachers' perversion of the gospel, would have helped them avoid persecution. Some speculate that perhaps these Judaizing teachers were arguing that the church can sort of hide within Judaism. Jews were already kind of a known entity in the Roman world. They were in some way tolerated. So by adopting Jewish practices, the church would be less conspicuous. So they changed the message to avoid the offense of the cross, to avoid how weird it is to believe in a crucified Savior. We talked about when we covered that passage on the offense of the cross, that the offense of the cross is both the humiliation of the cross. It says, I must humble myself and receive the work that Jesus has done. I can't be proud and and believe that I can save myself. It's that kind of offense. But it's also the the offense of of a Savior who demands something of us, who calls us to to renounce the way we have been living and to submit to him, to submit to his grace and also his lordship. I think if we might be tempted in a worldly kind of boasting way to to change the gospel, we're probably going to be tempted in the way of minimizing the exclusive claim of the gospel. We live in a world where it's okay for you to say, here's what works for me. Here's what's my truth. But... I don't just believe something that's my truth. If I believe the gospel, I believe something that says it's universally true. God commands all men everywhere to repent, doesn't he? So we have to embrace the scandal of saying, I know how you should live. Not I, but God does. And he's revealed it in his word, and he's calling you to obey it. The easy thing to do, the the awkward avoidance thing to do would be not to talk about the demands the gospel commands. Not to talk about the response of the gospel, which is repentance and faith, but just to talk about it in terms of, here's what works for me. We also know that we're tempted to change our message in other ways that might help us avoid awkwardness or persecution. 
These may not touch on the gospel specifically, but they're definitely implications of the gospel. So Christ's teaching about sexuality and marriage today are, are very offensive. And this has been the subject of our Sunday school class. To, to claim some authority about how you should live your life when it comes to your, your sexual desires today is, is spoken of as if it's violence in itself. To believe such things and to preach such things. We may be tempted to change our message so that we're not persecuted or, or canceled. But Paul wants us to see that such, such willingness to change the message is worldly. Right? It, it believes that the, the gospel is just a tool that we use to accomplish our ends, whether it's to, to gain power or to avoid persecution, that we can mold it however is most convenient to us. It requires us setting ourselves up against God and saying, we know best what our world needs. We know best how to live as Christians in this world. We'll just change the message. Paul warns us against that kind of worldly pride, that kind of worldly boasting in our own wisdom and knowledge. We also see that this worldly wisdom is hypocritical. In verse 13, he says that even those who are circumcised, or even those uh, who preach circumcision do not themselves keep the law. They, they say one thing, and maybe they don't completely understand what they're saying, but they don't do it. And this, this is one of the most sinister kinds of hypocrisy. You know, uh, the kind of hypocrisy we're most familiar with is hypocrisy that at least is, is in trying to maybe do the right thing. I'm a good Christian, right? Uh, but their hypocrisy is telling people to do something that's impossible and will damn them to hell, right? They're saying, keep the law and you will reach God. Keep the law and you'll be justified. When in reality, no one can keep the law and be justified. This is a, this is a cruel kind of hypocrisy. It's, it's worldly boasting that says, there's, there, again, there's something we can do to reach God. This kind of do as I say, not as I do is, is common in the world, right? How, how many times did we hear of scandals during the COVID lockdowns of politicians telling everyone to stay at home and stop the spread and then the next day they'd be found and gone to a big party with a bunch of their friends at a fancy restaurant or something? We, we're used to this kind of hypocrisy in the world. It's almost uh, just the way things are, you know? And, but, but should this ever be the case for Christians? where we, we say one thing and do another. I think the, the reality should be that Christians are aware of our tendency to hypocrisy, right? That we, we know this is kind of a natural bent. We want to present a good face. But to always be working to undermine that hypocrisy. This worldly boasting in, in the hypocritical sense basically says, I can present this false front and get away with it. I can present this false front and no one will ever know the difference. As long as I successfully pull off my PR campaign, I'm fine. This is what worldly boasting is like. And it relates to the last aspect of worldly boasting is it's all focused on what can be seen and counted. So we see these false teachers, they want to make a good showing in the flesh, according to verse 12. And again, verse 13, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They had some sort of expectation that if these Galatians got circumcised, that it would resound to their acclaim, that they would get something from it. 
So we can see how a focus on the external, a focus on what can be easily measured, it corrupts ministry, doesn't it? We've, we've seen cases of this, right? Where someone's obsessed with growing a large, successful church while ignoring their own personal holiness. We see the way this poisons ministry. But it's not something that's only a problem for, for pastors who have a vanity about the size of their churches. This external approach, this worldly boasting, can affect the way we see our personal discipleship. So instead of considering, am I trusting Christ? Am I repenting of my sin? Is my, is my heart right before God? We substitute something external and observable. Think about an interaction with your spouse. Perhaps it's a tense one. They've done something you don't like, something you think is maybe stupid. You avoid criticizing them out loud, but your heart is full of bitterness and anger and condescension. A worldly approach says, well, that's holiness. You didn't do the external thing. You, that, that, your spouse can't accuse you and have any evidence for their accusation. Well, we can maybe smell, celebrate the, the, the small victory that you didn't say the stupid, mean thing. But we must be cautious and aware about how tempted we are to settle for that merely external obedience. So we can recognize it's, it's good to have a consistent time of private devotion. It's good to discipline your tongue so that you don't say the stupid thing. You don't curse people out or use the Lord's name in vain. It's good to have habits of church attendance. But as good as these things are, they lead us astray when we make them the sum total of the Christian life. They lead us astray when we put our confidence in them. When we divorce these external behaviors from a heart of faith, hope, and love, we've taken the Christianity out of Christianity. We've turned Christianity into something worldly, into just a set of behaviors, a way of acting, a way of speaking, that has no relationship to our faith in Christ. This is life in the flesh that Paul warns us against. This is what these false teachers in Galatia were, were soaked in. Just live this way and God will be pleased with you. Just do what we say and you'll be fine. How poisonous it is when we believe that message. How, how lost we are when we rely on the flesh. Paul calls us to renounce all worldly boasting. So his closing plea is to show us that this way of self-reliance is hopeless, but also proud. To boast in the flesh is to destroy yourself and to destroy those who follow you. So he calls us away from boasting in the flesh. That's the negative part of this two-part appeal. Renounce worldly boasting. We see the positive part in verses 14 through 18. Again, in the text, he's just told us about how these false teachers want to boast in the, the flesh of the Galatians by having them circumcised. And so now he talks about his own boasts, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So he begins again with this personal appeal, his own boasting in Christ, in Christ's cross. But now notice how he, he generalizes out from that personal appeal in verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. What starts with the personal branches out to a general rule or principle for all people. That's the core of this appeal to boast in the cross is there in verse 15 and 16, that neither circumcision counts nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And he says, for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul wants us to see here is what counts. Not external realities that we can count or measure. It's not some mark in the flesh. None of that counts to God. What counts to God is God's miraculous new creation work inside our hearts. New creation refers to that new life created by God's Holy Spirit. It's the life of faith, justifying faith, working itself out in love. You might hear an echo, if you can remember back to chapter 5, Paul uses the same neither circumcision nor circumcision, uncircumcision formula. Chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Here's what counts. New creation, faith working through love, being alive by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit. So it's not walking by the old covenant, not by getting circumcised or any other rule, it's not a life of self-reliance, not a life of self-indulgence. The Christian life is walking by this rule or principle of new creation. Walking as those made alive through the work of God's Spirit. Trusting in the work of Christ. Paul says that when we do that, when we boast in the cross, when we are made alive by the Spirit, he pronounces this blessing. Mercy and peace. Peace and mercy. We've received mercy from God through the cross, and now we are at peace with God. This is who God's people are. The last phrase there of verse 16, the Israel of God, is much debated. So if you're aware of kind of dispensationalism and, and covenant theology debates, this is a hotbed of debate right here. Is this Israel an ethnic designation? Is it talking about some group within Israel, or is it talking about the church? I side with those who see the church here. So they say the and here is exegetical. It's just a way of renaming what he's already said. Those who walk by the Spirit, who walk by this new creation rule, is the Israel of God. And the best argument for why Paul is saying this here really goes back to what he's already said in chapters 3 and 4. He's argued that it's not those who live by the law who are the true heirs of Abraham. It's those who believe who are Abraham's children. As a matter of fact, he compares ethnic Israel to Ishmael, the son of Hagar. Whereas those in Christ, those are the children of promise. Those are the true heirs of Abraham's promise. 
And so I think Paul is really saying here at the end, wrapping all this up and saying, here is who God's new covenant people are. They are those who've been made alive by the Spirit of God. They are those who trust in Christ. They are those who are justified by faith. They are those who are walking by the Spirit. This is the marching orders and the identity of the church. This is who we are. Those who've received mercy from God through Jesus Christ and those who have peace with God. So Paul, in a sense, is summing up and reciting everything he's taught us here in these last few verses. But he's not just summing up. He continues to teach by using this, these new phrases, these ideas of, of boasting as a way, I think, to describe what true faith is. Boasting in the cross. And even this idea of fighting worldliness as a way to understand what the flesh is. And so Paul continues to teach us, and let's look at a few ways that this boast in the cross plays out in our lives. He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to believe is to boast, not in the flesh, but in the cross. To believe is to boast. To believe in Christ is to have confidence in what Christ has done for you. It's to say, I have no other hope than Jesus crucified in my place. To boast in the cross is to say, there is no other reality that saves sinners. Again, compare this to the boast in the flesh that views, looks on external things, that boasts in what we've done. Some act of devotion, some easily seen achievement. The boast in the cross is not in what we have done, it's in what Jesus has done. It's in the perfect life, the sacrificial death. That's what makes all the difference. Only by relying on Christ and his work by faith can we be saved. Yesterday in the preparing for worship email, maybe this was Thursday, I sent out, I included a link to this booklet by J.C. Ryle called The Cross. He tells us what Paul didn't mean when he boasted in the cross and what he did mean. It's a wonderful thing to read. But he notes in this tract that Paul had a lot that he, he could have boasted about. He's traveled all over the known world, planting churches, and he's suffered much along the way. He could also have boasted in his great knowledge. Right? Paul could have run circles around any of us in this room when it came to scripture knowledge or theological knowledge. Paul could have boasted in his godly virtues. He was a gracious, loving man, a man who spoke the truth. He had a lot to boast about, but these were not his boast. In Philippians 3.8, he says that he counts all of these things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as his Lord. All of these great achievements... Right? If Paul were alive today, he'd be on the cover of every denominational magazine. He'd be outselling everybody at the, at the Christian bookstores. He has so much to boast in, but that's not his boast. Faith boasts only in the cross. Now, this is not to say that good works, virtue, Bible knowledge are worthless. No, those things are valuable. Christians do walk as new creatures, we say. Faith working through love. That's who we are. We're the, we're the faith working through love people. But our hope is not in our works. Our hope is not in our love. There's not an ounce 
of merit that our goodness can add to what Christ has done. We can't improve on it. And if we think we are saved by the good things we've done, then we're deceived. Ryle exclaims, Alas for the man who can look forward to the day of judgment and lean his soul in the smallest degree on anything of his own. That man should beware. He's in danger. We don't want to lean in the smallest degree on what we have done. Our boast cannot be in ourselves. Paul calls us to boast only in the cross. It's good to remind ourselves exactly what Paul means by the cross. On the one hand, we can say this, these, this phrase is just a, a shorthand for Paul. It really includes the totality of Christ's saving work. So it, it encompasses that fact that Jesus was born of a woman, that he lived perfectly obediently, that he suffered death in the place of sinners, that he raised from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, that he sat down at the right hand of God. So all the things we confess in the Apostles' Creed, they can all be assumed under this phrase, the cross. But it's notable that Paul doesn't just subsume the gospel under the, the incarnation. He doesn't say, my boast is only in the incarnation. My boast is only in the resurrection at this point. He says the cross because he wants to draw our attention to what Jesus has done. To what Jesus has done in the place of sinners. That he offers himself as a sacrifice in our place to make atonement. To reconcile us to God. So by saying the cross... Paul is like got a laser pointer on what Jesus did, focusing our eyes on his atoning work, that Jesus paid the price of our sins, that by his wounds we are healed. He took our punishment on himself on the cross. This is our boast. Think about what a hopeless state we would be in if Jesus, the Son of God, was incarnate, born, obeyed perfectly without dying, and then ascended to heaven. You know, we would have a good example of a human being who's done it right. Would that help us at all? We couldn't obey the law as it was given through Moses, and we couldn't obey Jesus as he kept the law. We couldn't follow him perfectly, even though we have a perfect example to follow. Without Christ on the cross, we are hopeless. A crossless religion is a hopeless religion. The cross is essential. The cross must be our boast. And remember, this is not an academic point of doctrine for Paul. He's not an outsider who's, who's been perfected by some other means, suggesting to you, know, you plebeians down below, maybe try the cross. You know, he says in Galatians 2.20, The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself for me. Is that your confession? Is that your hope? That Jesus loves you? The cross of Christ cannot save you if it's just something you know about. Even if you could write a perfect essay explaining penal substitutionary atonement, but that truth had not come home to you, that wouldn't save you. To be saved by the cross, you have to be convinced that because of your rebellion against God, you deserve to be hanging on the cross. That you deserve God's wrath forever. 
you have to see that your pride, your selfishness, your impurity, your worldliness, all of those things have earned you the wages of sin, the wrath of God. To be saved by the cross, you must know that the Son of God willingly came to take your place. That before the foundation of the world, he loved you. He took on flesh to die for you. We sing that wonderful hymn, It was my sin that held him there. He died for your sin and my sin. To be saved on the cross, you must believe that Jesus gave himself for you. Are you boasting in the cross? The cross delivers us from the penalty of sin. And the cross delivers us from the power of sin. One of the reasons we sang Rock of Ages today was so we could sing that wonderful line that the cross saves us from sin's guilt and power. Paul says that by the cross, the world has been crucified to him and he to the world. There's no other way to be delivered from sin's slavery. But when we trust in Christ, we die to the world and we live to God. In other words, it's only because our boast is in the cross that we can walk this new creation rule that Paul commends. Only because we've died with Christ and been raised with him by the power of God's Spirit can we live as Christians. We believe the Holy Spirit has united us to Christ by faith. So we are crucified with him and we are alive with him. Raised to walk in newness of life. And the cross gives us the motive for living this new life. In that tract from J.C. Ryle, again, he ends with all of these reasons why you should glory in the cross. And one of the reasons he gives is that through, the, through, through seeing the cross, we have the greatest motivation for holiness. So he says, would I find strong reasons for being a holy man? Each one of his reasons is introduced by, this, by a question like this. Where would you look if you wanted a reason to be holy? Ryle says, I will look at the cross. There I see the love of Christ constraining me to live, not unto myself, but unto him. There I see that I am not my own, I am bought with a price. Ah, oh, reader, there is nothing so sanctifying as a clear view of the cross of Christ. It crucifies the world unto us and us unto the world. How can we love sin when we remember that because of our sins, Jesus died. Surely none ought to be so holy as the disciples of a crucified Lord. Do you have a clear view of the cross? If you want to fight sin, fight worldliness, as we spoke about already, fight hypocrisy, fight sinful self-reliance, look to Jesus on the cross. He purchased you with his own life. He died for your sin. If Jesus died for your sin, why continue living in sin? The cross provides a motivation for holiness. It provides a motivation for walking as new creation people. When we see the cross of Christ, when we see the price of our sin, we're armed for the fight against our sin. We often have this silly phrase, we joke, not today, Satan, right? Have you heard people say that phrase? But when we see our sin, we say that that's not who I am. This is not who I'm meant to be. Christ died to pay that price. I don't, want to, I don't want to do something else that would bring shame on the name of Christ. 
We want to live in holiness. Another reason Ryle says we should glory in the cross is because it's through the cross that we find contentment and comfort. So he says if we want to find joy in all of life's trials, we look at the cross. When I look at the cross, he says, I feel that he who spared not his only begotten son, but delivered him up to die for me, will surely with him give me all things that I really need. He that endured that pain for my soul will surely not withhold from me anything that is really good. What are we going through now where we're tempted to think God's withholding? God is not being as good to me as I deserve. Look at the cross and find contentment. Know that he gave his only son for you. The cross reminds us of God's infinite goodness and generosity. He will not withhold anything from us that is really good. This is true even in times of intense persecution. One of the weird things about this conclusion of Paul's is he has this line in verse 17, From now on let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. This is actually the, the marks there is stigmata, right? The only place in the Bible this word occurs and people have done weird things with it, right? All those weird things are not what Paul is talking about. It's probably Paul's way of saying he's been persecuted for his gospel that he preaches. And again, doesn't this remind you of what he said about these false teachers? They changed the gospel to avoid persecution. Because of the offense of the cross, Paul was persecuted, but, but some are tempted to modify it to avoid persecution. I think that's what Paul's drawing our attention to here. He's undergone persecution. Let no one trouble him anymore. That doesn't mean don't ask me any questions. I think it means don't accuse me. Don't accuse me of forsaking this gospel because I've got the scars to prove that I have sold out my life to this gospel. But consider what could motivate a person to endure persecution. What could give us the, the ballast to go through being beaten or ostracized, kicked out of our family. It's only the cross. The cross is like a, a granite monument in our life, an immovable thing that we can look to and see, God loves me. Everything else may have been taken away. I've lost it all, but I know God loves me because I can see the cross clearly. Ryle says that when we suffer, we should think whose hand it is that disciplines you. Think whose hand it is that is measuring the cup of bitterness which you are now drinking. It is the hand of him that was crucified. God did not spare his only son. Jesus came to drink the cup of God's wrath. And if he brings us through hard and bitter things, he is with us. It is part of his loving pruning, his fatherly discipline, that he would work in our lives to bring us deeper contentment and joy in the cross. In this letter to the Galatians, Paul has addressed our greatest need, our biggest problem. We have set ourselves against God through our sin, we've lived to please ourselves. We've indulged every sinful desire. 
And then on top of all that, we fool ourselves into thinking there's something we can do to make up for it all. That we can do this or that thing. We can observe this ritual and thereby achieve peace with God through our own work. Some of us get some Bible teaching along the way and think, well, the, those things we can do, those are, those are Bible-y things. I'll do a bit of Old Testament ritual. I'll do a this, that, this or that. I'll go to church. That'll be a thing. This has the veneer and the authority of the Bible. If I do that, God will be pleased. But Paul wants us to see no one is justified by works of the law. No one saves themselves by what they do. Our rebellion has earned us God's wrath. We are God's enemies. We are not at peace with God. This is true objectively. I think in our honest moments we know it to be true subjectively. We know that our goodness is not enough. We know that if we stand before God on Judgment Day and trot out the good things we've done, they will melt away in an instant. We know we are not at peace with God. We are under his judgment. But when we look to the cross, we see peace and mercy with God. This is Paul's final blessing. Peace and mercy to those who walk by the new creation rule. Peace and mercy. God's abundant mercy is poured out on sinners who trust in Christ. Through faith in Christ, we're justified. In God's eyes, he sees us as perfectly righteous because we're clothed with the radiant garments of Christ. So we stand before God with no condemnation. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine because of God's amazing love. We are at peace with God because of the mercy of God. Peace through mercy. Because the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. Paul's letter to the Galatians should make an end of all our boasting so that we boast only in the cross. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a joy it is to recount your amazing love that you sent the Son and the Son willingly came to give himself for us. Father, help us each when sin accuses us to remember these words that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Help us as we try to edify each other as we try to disciple one another and help each other follow Jesus, to be, to be quick to proclaim, brother or sister, Jesus loves you and gave himself for you. And help us to be bold in telling our lost neighbors who are involved in all kinds of things we don't even fully know. Help us to preach this good news that they don't need to continue in their lostness. They don't need to try in vanity to save themselves. They need to receive the love of God in Christ. Father, we thank you for this good news that turns sinners into sons. 
We pray that we would live in a way that glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen.